Welcome back to Parkside Greens Bible Study. I hope you enjoyed the break week and maybe you were able to be part of the Wednesday night worship. I know that this time away has just made me all the more eager to get back into our study of Luke's Gospel, and I hope the same is true for you. You'll remember that we left off after studying the first 20 verses of chapter 3 of Luke, where John proclaimed that people should repent of their sins to be forgiven, and that was signified by their being baptized, cleansed in the Jordan River. Uh, John's ministry was all about preparing the way right for the Lord, and now in this week's passage, that forerunner, John, is going to take a huge step back and the Messiah is going to step forward onto center stage. We're going to organize our study this week around three headings. They're, they're not terribly creative, but each section is going to help us answer perhaps the most important question in the world. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? First, we'll look at Jesus' baptism. That's in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus' genealogy. That's in chapter 3, verses 23 to 28. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at Jesus' temptation in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. So we begin then with Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And I think the first thing we notice is that when all the people were baptized... Jesus was also baptized. Now, of course, Jesus did not need to repent or be forgiven of any sins because he was sinless. Luke is going to show us later in this passage that Jesus resisted Satan's temptations to sin. And Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus knew no sin. Peter will say in 1 Peter 2.22 that Jesus committed no sin. The author of Hebrews will say in chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was without sin. And John will say in 1 John 3, 5, that in Jesus there is no sin. So Jesus' baptism, it's not the same as other people's baptisms. Matthew 3, verses 13 to 15, records how Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan, and John would have prevented him. Right, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John agreed to baptize Jesus. Maybe Jesus' baptism signals his commissioning to public ministry, or, or perhaps Jesus' baptism is a way of identifying him with the very sinners that he came to save. Somehow, we know, it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Regardless of where we land there, we know the meaning of what happens after Jesus' baptism. Right after his baptism, Jesus was praying. He, he was talking to God, and the heavens were opened, preparing us, right, for God's response. And we see two things. First, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in bodily form, like a dove. And secondly, a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The whole Trinity is on the scene. At the same time, it's beautiful. One God in three distinct persons. 
God the Son is baptized and he's praying. God the Spirit descends on God the Son visibly. And God the Father identifies Jesus as his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. Jesus is no ordinary human, right? With the, the Spirit descending and the heavens open and a voice from heaven speaking, clearly there is something divine going on here. Who is this Jesus? He is God's Spirit-anointed and beloved Son, the one with whom God the Father is well-pleased or even delighted, we might say. His baptism then teaches us so much about who this Jesus is, and so does his genealogy. Now, when we come across genealogies in Scripture, a lot of our eyes just start to glaze over, and sometimes we just skip to the bottom past all those names. We want to see where the story picks back up. But genealogies are an important part of God's inspired word to us. Three of the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 5 and 10 and 11, are genealogies. And both Matthew and Luke devote more than a dozen verses in their Gospels to Jesus' genealogy. Luke traces Jesus' heritage from his social or legal father, Joseph, back through some 75 predecessors. God has been at work in all these generations, culminating in Jesus. And within this list, we come across some familiar names, right? Like David, Israel's most famous king, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the famous patriarchs of Israel. Then there are a lot of unfamiliar names there too, but each of them is a crucial link in what God is doing, the chain of God fulfilling his purposes in Jesus. And I think we especially benefit from what is at the end and what also is at the beginning of Luke's genealogy. At the end, in verse 38, we see that Jesus' lineage goes all the way back to Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, Adam and Jesus are both sons of God and having no biological human fathers. But of course, where Adam failed by disobeying God and bringing sin into the world, Jesus would succeed by always obeying God and bringing salvation into the world. At the beginning of the genealogy in verse 23, we see that Jesus' human lineage begins by naming him as the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Right? Luke's already told us three times in chapter 1 that Mary was a virgin when the Holy Spirit came upon her, causing her to conceive and bear the Son of God. So it makes sense here for Luke to call Jesus the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Right? It's a subtle reminder that Joseph was Jesus' social or legal father, but not his biological father. Also at the beginning, in verse 23, did you notice that Luke tells us when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. Now, for you math lovers, we know from Luke 1.5 and Luke 3.1, as well as from Matthew 2, that Jesus was born before Herod the Great died, which was in 4 BC. 
And we know from Luke 3, 1 that John's public ministry, which is immediately followed by Jesus's public ministry, began around 28 or 29 AD, right in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So putting it together, that, that puts Jesus in his early 30s or about 30 years of age, as Luke 3.23 says. Back to our central question. Who is this Jesus? Well, from his baptism, we learn that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And from his genealogy, we learn he has descended all the way from Adam to his earthly father, Joseph. And we learn that when Jesus began his public ministry, he was about 30 years of age. And now, in our final section, we're going to see that Jesus' ministry began in a surprising way. I mean, we might think that Jesus is going to preach or he's going to deliver people, as was expected of the Messiah. But instead, Luke tells us that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, a, a desolate, deserted area for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil. Interesting, isn't it, that Luke does not introduce the devil or, or give any background information on him, but seems to simply assume that the readers of his gospel are familiar with who the devil is from way back in Genesis 3. Notice, too, the fact that the Spirit led Jesus into this desolate place to be tempted. You see, it was God's plan right from the outset to clarify what sort of Messiah Jesus would be. The Spirit is the one who initiates this, this encounter or conflict or confrontation between Jesus and the devil. And the first temptation, of course, centers around physical hunger. Jesus ate nothing, nothing, during his 40 days in the desolate desert. So naturally, he was starving. I mean, I get hungry if I miss a single meal, and, and I've never fasted for more than a day at a time. Jesus is coming off a 40-day fast, and he is famished. So the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Right? Use your special powers to provide for yourself and satisfy your hunger. After all, I mean, why should the Son of God go hungry? Turn the stones into bread. But Jesus answers the devil's temptation by quoting scripture from Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Yes, as humans, food sustains our physical lives, true. But physical food is not the most important thing. Jesus is more concerned with living by every word that comes from the mouth of God, as Matthew 4.4 4 says. Check out the full context of Deuteronomy 8.3, right? It's this, just as God let the Israelites hunger and then fed them with manna, Jesus trusted God to feed him without needing to use his special powers to feed himself. Though fully human and really, really hungry, Jesus would not fall into Satan's physical temptations. He showed he was the Son of God, not by turning stones into bread, but by patiently waiting on and trusting in God's provision for him 
straight one for the devil. So the devil changed his tactics. He took Jesus up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the inhabited world in a moment of time, right? Somehow there was this instant panoramic view of every worldly kingdom. And then came the proposed deal with the devil. You worship me and it'll all be yours. I'll give you all this authority and glory. Is that true? Well, on the one hand, in John 12, 31, Jesus does call Satan the ruler of this world. So some think that God has allowed Satan some temporary authority. But in John 8, 44, Jesus also says there is no truth in the devil. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So others think that Satan is distorting the truth. He's, he's offering something that he really doesn't have to give. What we know for sure from Genesis to Revelation is that ultimately all authority in heaven and on earth and all glory belongs to God. So the devil's second temptation here is really a temptation to break the first commandment which says, you shall have no other gods before me or beside me. So Jesus again responds by quoting scripture, this time from Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Worshiping the true God is way better than ruling the whole world. So Jesus resists the temptation to get what would rightly be his, all authority and glory, he resists the temptation to get that by illegitimate means of worshiping the devil. There will be no shortcuts, you see, to Jesus receiving all authority and all glory. He would not seek a crown without first going through the cross. Strike two for Satan. <laughs> and Jesus just keeps slaying Satan with the sword of the Spirit, right? The word of God. So Satan tries to turn this weapon on Jesus. He took Jesus to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple, right? The, the highest, most exposed point there. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, Satan says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jump from this prominent spot and let people see God's angels catch you. Imagine the, the buzz and admiration. It's going to go viral, right? This jump should be no problem for you if you are the Son of God. Now, yes, Satan correctly quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, but he yanks it out of its correct context and he twists God's word, he distorts it. Look it up. Psalm 91 is not about a person trying to force God to protect them. Rather, it's about making God our dwelling place and trusting in the Lord. We are not to attempt to dictate or force God's hand or demand the spectacular. So again, Jesus answers the devil's temptation by quoting God's word. Here from Deuteronomy 6.16, it is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Strike three for Satan. 
And you notice that in all these temptations, the devil can suggest wrongdoing, but only the tempted person can actually do the wrong act. And Jesus will not. He'll have none of it. So the first step back clearly goes to Jesus. Three strikes, and Satan is out of here. <laughs> but not permanently. Right? After the initial temptations, the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. We have not seen the last of the devil in this Gospel of Luke. When Jesus later on tells his disciples that he must suffer and die and then rise again, Peter, remember, would be the voice of Satan, a hindrance to Jesus, declaring that this shall never happen to Jesus. And at the end, Jesus would be sorely tempted to avoid the horrors of the cross and all that that entailed. Brothers and sisters, there is no freedom from temptation in this life, for Jesus or for us. But in all these temptations, Jesus would not yield or put the Lord to the test. Jesus simply quotes God's word to the devil with no discussion, no further dialogue, no other words of Jesus are recorded in this exchange other than God's word. Who is this Jesus? He is not only declared to be the Son of God, but he shows himself to be the Son of God by resisting all of the devil's temptations, putting his full trust in God, his loving Father. There are so many possible applications here. Just consider with me these four as we move toward closing. Number one, praise Jesus as the one who is anointed by the Spirit and loved by God the Father, who is well-pleased with his Son, who is fully divine. Secondly, also praise Jesus for his full humanity. Right? He's the descendant of Adam and Abraham and David and Joseph and many others. God the Son became a human that he might rescue his people, other humans, from our sins. Thirdly, praise Jesus that when he was tempted like us in every respect, he never sinned. And because he never sinned, he was able to go to the cross as our Savior, a perfect lamb without blemish or spot. Fourth and finally, Jesus is, of course, first and foremost, our Savior from sin and our Lord. But he's also our example and our strength in resisting temptation. As his followers, Jesus shows us how to use God's word, right? memorized and ready for the moment, so that we can defeat Satan's attacks and his temptations. It is written. It is written. It is written. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled that Jesus would undergo baptism, even though he never sinned. We're amazed at Jesus' full divinity as your Son and his full humanity in his earthly lineage. We're forever grateful that Jesus resisted the devil's temptations again and again, qualifying him to go to the cross as a lamb without blemish or spot, able to atone for others' sins.
We praise you, Lord, that Jesus has triumphed forever over the devil, over sin, and over death. Through your victorious Son, we pray. Amen.